Would you join with me uh, in looking into 1 Chronicles chapter 16? 1 Chronicles chapter 16 is a passage that I'd, look at, uh, I'd like us to look at this morning. It is uh, interesting how we all have, um, have experienced uh, the, the consequences of associating expectations with places and uh, people. We, have, we are in the habit of putting people into certain places or categorizing them as saying that certain people fit in certain places, certain people don't. Uh, certain neighborhoods are our neighborhoods and certain neighborhoods are not. We, we might walk in or wander into a certain neighborhood and because of the way it appears, we would feel unsafe or safe or comfortable, uh, and so on and so forth. And likewise, we've had the experience, perhaps, of becoming more familiar with an area that we're not familiar with, and our expectations uh, change. They flip. What was an unsafe neighborhood then becomes a safe neighborhood, a place that we wouldn't mind living or or being at. But we, we put people in places. We say that certain people belong in in certain neighborhoods for the same reason. And I think we do the same thing with Bible passages or parts of God's Word. We say that some neighborhoods, some passages, some chapters, some books are for us as Christians and some are, are not. And I want to say that our expectations can change. Our expectations can shift. If I were to tell you about the story or the time that I was introduced or or came to uh, find uh, Pearson Johnson at a Tupperware party, that would make for at least a a, uh, a good story, wouldn't it? It hasn't actually happened. Maybe it's less strange for him. That hasn't happened, uh, not not yet today, but it would at least make for a good story, okay? Okay. I want to shift your expectations. Whatever you feel about how you belong as a Christian in this passage, I want to shift your expectations and tell you that you ought to belong in this chapter. You ought to belong and go to the, the book of First Chronicles and then find, um, find and glean from that um, something for our life today. Not least of which for, because we find in this chapter um, passages or words that, that call us to respond Verse uh, 23, for instance, says, Sing to the Lord all the earth, which of course includes us. The nations and the peoples are repeatedly exalted or called to respond. Verse 34, oh, give thanks to the Lord. And he is referring to all the, all the earth. Verse 35 refers to the nations. Uh, so uh, this passage in several places then calls out to the nations, calling them to respond to what is happening here. What is happening in this chapter? Well, at the beginning and the end, you have this narrative of the Ark of the Covenant being moved into the, onto the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. It moves maybe no more than two miles to get to its resting place where the temple will be built uh, after David's reign. And in this chapter, you have the response then. Most of the verses here in the middle of the chapter are the response then to this happening. The beginning, the first seven verses tell of David's organizing of the tent, moving of the, the Ark of the Covenant into it, and then how uh, worship is organized for that time. Then after the Psalms that are given to us in the middle of the chapter, beginning in verse 37, he has the follow-up, how things are cleaned up, how uh, he gives out, uh, distributes uh, fig cakes and goes on to his home to bless his family and so forth. I'm going to read for us and focus on the Psalms in the middle of the chapter, as these, I think, are instructive for us. They have, again, in short, they're calling us, the Gentiles, all of the earth, to respond to what is happening here, which raises a question for us. Why would we, as Gentile Christians, 
be called? Why would all the peoples of all the earth be called to respond to something that has happened so long ago, which doesn't seem to have immediately any bearing upon us? The Ark of the Covenant is not with us. We're not on the Temple Mount. As far as I can tell, we're, we're not Jews. So why would all the earth be called to respond to such an event? I think in order to answer that question, then, we have to perhaps be corrected in our view of worship, what it ought to be, what it ought to do. For instance, if you are of the mindset that worship is something that happens to you, that you can come into this place week in and week out, and then be filled up or charged up as if uh, you were a battery, and leave here encouraged or ready for whatever it is to be coming up in this week, then I think that you have something here to be encouraged or uh, to learn from, as in most of the scripture does not give us warrant to receive passively what is happening in worship. We are to engage with it actively. We are to make it meaningful by our actions and by our thoughts and by our engagement with it. In short, what is happening here is a meaningful response to what God has done. And generally, it runs from what God has done to what he is, who he is now, and to what he will do. And they worship in response to that. They give praise and thanks and call upon him in response to that. That is what worship is, and I believe that that's what makes it meaningful. It is a response to who God is, what he has done, who he is now, and what he will do. And we are to do that together if it is to be meaningful. It is to any, be anything but the typical response or what we've all experienced when we come in just the same and we, and we think to ourselves, uh, ah, I was not blessed or I was blessed or I was encouraged or not encouraged. We, we come in and we, we engage with the music or we sing to the, with, the, with the music and leave without really considering the truth of what is happening, nor do we consider what is actually happening in our life, let alone who God is and what he is doing. We've all done that if we've gone through the motion, so to speak. I want to increase our resolve to make our worship meaningful by considering who God is, what he has done, who he is now, and, and what he will do in the future. And we'll work generally through this passage in that way. So let me read then, beginning in verse 8, these psalms in the middle of chapter 16. God's word says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him, sing praises to him, speak of all his wonders. Glory in his holy name, let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face continually. Remember his wonderful deeds which he has done, his marvels and the judgments from his mouth. O seed of Israel, his servant, sons of Jacob, his chosen ones, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac. He also confirmed it to Jacob for a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as the portion of your inheritance. When they were only a few in number, very few and strangers in it, and they wandered about from nation to nation and from one kingdom to another people, he permitted no man to oppress them, and he reproved kings for their sakes, saying, Do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. Tell of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He also is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples 
are idols. But the Lord, the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in holy array. Tremble before him all the earth. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice and let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all it contains. Let the field exult and all that is in it. Then the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Then say, save us, O God, of our salvation and gather us and deliver us from the nations to give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting even to everlasting. Again, the aim of this message is to strengthen our resolve to make our worship meaningful. We can make our worship meaningful because of what God has done and who he is and what he will do. And our worship ought to reflect that. So first, our worship ought to be made meaningful by considering where we were, what God has done in the past. Verses 8 through 22 then look back. They look in the rearview mirror at that point. They look back on the journey that has brought them up into Jerusalem. Verses 16 through 18 then refer to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, specifically to the promises that were given to these men and those that would benefit also from those promises. But there's more than a thousand years that have passed uh, since the giving of those promises and the event that they are celebrating on this Temple Mount. There's a lot that has happened in that time, and not all of it was pleasant. In fact, most of it was trying. It was difficult to perceive from the beginning, from the giving of those promises, how they would make it to the point that they were at. And they refer to that. He refers to that, that they were few in number. They were of little account. They were sojourners. They were wandering around. They were subject to the whims of those that were stronger than them. They were taking refuge amongst people that would and could have taken advantage of them. But God said that he would, he would protect them. And so he said, do not touch my anointed ones. And do my prophets no harm, as he says in verse 22. So during that whole wandering phase, before they landed in Jerusalem and before the Ark of the Covenant was moved onto the mount, God did exactly what he promised to do. He is faithful to accomplish what he has agreed to, he would do. And they're looking back to recognize that and to take stock of it and then to give him praise for what he has accomplished for his faithfulness. I want to encourage us, based upon this example, that we would do the same from time to time. We would look back. We would look at what God has done to bring us to the point that we are at. We would take stock of the blessings and the grace that he has worked into our life and that we would do this deliberately because it's not in our habit, it's not in our nature to do so. If you're in a road trip like we are, the kids, unless they have heard this illustration too many times, they say repeatedly from the, back of, from the back seat of the van, when are we going to get there? Our mindset is fixed on a milestone or a, or a waypoint in our, in, our, in our future ahead of us that we haven't yet re- reached. We think about what it's going to take to get there. Not exactly of how much, has, how much ground has been covered in our rearview mirror, how much ground we have passed. From time to time, we look back at those things and we are amazed at exactly what has happened 
how kids have grown, how people have aged, how we've gone through difficult times. I, 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 no matter what these past two years have brought from, for you, they've brought something different and something challenging for each of us. The fact that we are here, the fact that we are willing to gather together and name the name of Christ and to worship him in song is an evidence of his grace in our life. Indeed, the very fact that we are breathing in air is, a, is an evidence of the fact that he is kind and gracious to us each and every day. Our African brethren are good at reminding one another of this very thing, and they make a habit of doing this, and I think that we can learn from them in this regard. From time to time to remember, to look back at the years, the days, the months that have preceded this point, and to identify those things in which God has done to get us this far lest we take for granted what he is doing in our life by his grace and out of his faithfulness. And once we do that, we respond appropriately. We give him the glory, the thanks, and the praise that is due to him. This passage commands as much to us. Now, so all the times that it says, it gives us these imperatives, like verses 8 through 13, it says, call upon his name, sing, Sing glory in his holy name. Seek the Lord and remember later on, verses 23 and 24. It says, sing and tell and declare, ascribe, ascribe and worship. There's rejoicing, there's exulting, there's praising, there's singing and there's blessing. And all these things are commands. Just because they're recorded for us in song does not mean that they're poetic excess or emotional overflow for people that are excitable, people that like to sing, these are imperatives. This is the appropriate response for what God is owed for the good things that he does in our life. To withhold from him the thanks and praise that he is owed for what he is doing in our life would be to follow in the steps of the prodigal son before he returned or the, or the rich fool that looked at the blessings that God had given to him and did not recognize who it was that was blessing him. And who it was, by whose strength and by whose kindness we may be gathered together and have any inclination to give thanks and to give praise to him. It is all out of him and is of his kindness. I'm suggesting that we make it a habit, that we make it a pattern of our life to look back at those things, lest we forget, unless we focus too much on the ugly things that are sitting right in our, our faces or right in our laps, as it were. So if we look back at the past, we look in the rearview mirror, we recognize what God has done. We give to him the thanks and the praise for those things, for his goodness and his greatness in the times past. We recognize that he's brought us up to this point and we continue, we move forward by putting our eyes upon him, taking our eyes off of the things that are in our, our present perhaps that are shrinking out or crowding out space for him that he deserves. For his goodness and his greatness are not just in the past, they continue into the present. This is reflected in the, in the Psalms that we've read, that we are to ascribe and to sing, for he is the Lord and his judgments are in all the earth. His work continues and continues in, into the future. The conclusion of all this, of all this thought, is that, is that there is no God like our God. There is no one that deserves worship like our God. All the others are worthless idols. They are pretend gods at best. They need other people to speak and to act on their behalf. But our God... Our God made the heavens. Nobody else did that. No other God came close to making the heavens and the earth and all that is seen and unseen. Nobody else did that. 
So he is, stands alone among all the so-called gods. Not only does he stand alone for what he has done, but he also stands alone in what he is. He, he reigns over all that he has made. Verse 14 says that his judgments are in all the earth. Verse 15 says that they are there for a thousand generations. Later it says that he will come to judge. The idea is for every place, for every spot that he has made, for everything that he has created, he reigns with absolute surety over all of it. And he reigns for all of eternity, for a thousand generations. That is, he reigns forever. His reign will never cease. It says that his world, world, the world is established, verse 30, it shall never be moved. It means that he rules over all and that will never change. Verse 31, he deserves to be recognized as the sovereign. For all the nations ought to declare that the Lord reigns. The idea is that in every place that he has made and everywhere that there is, there, there is something that has been made, that he is there and that his judgments are there. That is that he has a right to declare what is good and what is right and what is not in every place that he has, that he has created, every place that he has named, every place that he has made. It is good for us to recognize that truth and to be reminded of that from time to time because there is in every one of us uh, enough of a Clint Eastwood or a John Wayne that would, that would bucket the idea that there is an absolute sovereign that deserves to declare in each and every part of our life what is good and what is right and what is not. In each and every part of our life, not just the part of our life that is here giving to God uh, our songs and our, our things. It is only to him that we deserve and to respond in the way that, that these verses describe. We know that we've marinated in this truth. We've, we've, we've absorbed this truth that he reigns over every part of our life and we respond in the way that these verses call us to. Verse 30 says that we should tremble before him. We should shake out of fear before him because that's appropriate to do. Now, it's not a kind of trembling that we would tremble before an invading army as, as some are doing, but a, a trembling that is mixed with joy because we're also here in these, in these verses that joy is in his presence. Strength is in his presence. These verses also conclude with us running to him and calling out to him for salvation and relying upon him for our help and for our salvation. This is a fear, a right response then is a fear that's mixed with joy, a fear that doesn't run away from him but runs to him. A love that draws us near to him even as, as we are trembling and fearing his, his ire and his wrath. He is the God that does wondrous works and his steadfast love is now and for all of eternity. And so we conclude by running to him and calling out to him where, where, we are, where it is needed. Worship then is the response to who he is, is to ascribe to him the attributes that belong to him, to give to him the praise and the thanks uh, that he deserves. But it also does something in us that is an appropriate response. To ascribe to him who he is, to recognize who he is, then changes the way that we look at our situation. It is, in short, it is a putting into perspective all uh, right things. We all have this tendency to make uh, much out of the things that trouble us, uh, to stare at the things that are, are, are on our minds and on our hearts and weighing heavily, and maybe rightfully so on our hearts. But looking only at those things and not upon our God then makes those things out to be bigger than what they truly are. When we are least wanting to, when we are 
not wanting to worship God and to think about Him. And when we're often tempted to stare at those things that trouble and concern us, we are tempted to make those things the size of our life or to make our life shrink down to the size of those problems. It is at those times that we most need to look at God and to put those things in proper perspective of who He is. If we throw them at the feet of a truly good and great God, we make them to be the size that they truly are. By acknowledging who He is, we reinforce our trust in Him, we reinforce our hope, we reinforce our love and our resolve then to move forward despite the fact that there's something ugly staring in our face. It's true that when we least want to worship Him, we need to be here or we need to be on our knees in our closets, at home, wherever we are, acknowledging who God is. And that is how we move forward, by acknowledging who He is in that moment, even though those things seem ugly and huge in our eyes. What we need to do is to meaningfully worship and to put those things in proper perspective before a God that is truly good and a God that is truly great. So meaningful worship then looks at the past, acknowledges who God is and what he's done in that past in the rearview mirror, acknowledges who he is in the present, and then it allows these things then to push us forward as we consider the future. This is perhaps a little bit more tricky as we look at the uncertainty of what's going to happen. As we move out from this place, as we move out from worship, it's uncertain because God has truly been good to us in the past. He is good and great in the present we know that he is going to be good and great in the, in the future. And we have promises or allusions to that very idea even in these verses. We know that his reign is not going to be shaken as it says in verse 30, that the world is established and it shall never be moved. He will judge and he will come to judge. He will make right what is currently wrong and he will make that final and absolute in some day, but we're not yet there. We also see of his goodness and his goodness will continue. And we have a right in verse 34 to praise him for his steadfast love will endure forever, that he will always be the God that saves and that when we are in trouble, even in the future, we have a, we have a right to call out to him in those situations, and then to give thanks for him, for him, for his salvation and for his help and for his strength in those situations that we are not yet in. But we know then it implies that we know that there's going to be trouble between this point and that point at which he will make all things that are wrong to be right. We know that there is unfinished business. There's work yet that he has yet to complete. And he has yet to work and to finish all of that. That means that we are going to run into problems. It means that there's uncertainty about what's going to happen between this point and then the future in which all things are, are finally realized and all of his promises are completely fulfilled. I, I, I love the prayer at the end of, of Acts 4 where the church is, is just coming, maybe not just, but is coming to recognize the difficulty of what lays ahead. So you have uh, John... And Peter, they're, they're released from prison after being warned. And their response to that warning, the warning they're told that they are not to preach in the name of Jesus Christ. And they say that, well, you do what you have to basically, but we're going to continue preaching because we can't be silent about, about what we've seen and the fact that Jesus is the Messiah and that he's risen from the grave. So we're going to do what we need to do. You do what you need to do. They get back together with the church and then they respond appropriately in prayer. Now, how would you pray if you knew that there was conflict that was coming up. So if you know that you can't back down because you've got a message that needs to be proclaimed, but that message is going to draw attention and criticism and danger, 
and persecution upon you. You know that that conflict is coming, but you cannot avoid it. What do you pray? The church at that point, they prayed. I was, well, let me first say, on my behalf, I would pray that all those enemies, they just would not be enemies anymore. <laughs> I would pray that, that you know, they'd all get converted and, and that would make an easy path forward. I would pray that I would providentially be removed from the conflict or I would providentially be taken out of those situations that are, that are dangerous. But the focus of that prayer is, Lord, we know that you deserve to be proclaimed. We know that enemies are going to continue for this time. So we ask for boldness. And they were given that. They asked that God's will would be done. And God, no doubt, he performed his will and he accomplished that. I love that prayer. And I see something similar here. We don't see the details about what's going to get us from here to there. We see the end point. We see people looking back. We see people looking at the present. And we see that when we get to that point in the future, we know all things are going to be well. But what we need to get there is confidence in the God that has brought us this far. And you see people in these Psalms then considering that based upon what they've observed on the Temple Mountain that day. I want to say that they, they have, from this worship, they have the strength or the resolve then to move forward then with God and then towards those that are not joining them in worship. We see both of those ideas then. So meaningful worship, yes, ought to push us forward then into the future in these ways. It pushes us forward with God and then towards those who are not yet ascribing to God what is due Him, what He deserves. It pushes us forward with Him because as we look back and as we look at the present, we recognize that God will continue to be who He has always been. And we know that He will not fail to be faithful to us in the future. As we look back, we may perhaps be tempted to move back. We may be tempted to want and to ask for God to bring us back to the situations that we were in where we saw his blessings in those, in those places and in those times with those people where we saw God's grace most evidently worked and we can thank him for that. And we may be tempted to want to go back to that point. I, this is an issue for Israelites then throughout the book the whole Bible, they're tempted to make so much of this point of the height of Israelite history before the New Testament. They're made, they make this and the temple and that place to be so precious in their eyes that they would want to go back. They make it even so precious that it's more precious than the Lord. When they come to meet him, when he comes to meet him and they have a choice to worship and to serve Jesus or to worship and acknowledge and to see the temple, they choose the temple, many of them, and they murder Jesus. For us, we can't desire so much to move back to those past blessings so that we would fail to recognize God's ability to move, and move us forward in faithfulness, in his faithfulness. I look back at our past and I see a wonderful situation that we had in Tanzania. I see a wonderful team Wonderful people that we were introduced to, great friends that we still have that are there, and a remarkable team that God brought together in that place, and uh, a place that we, by God's grace, were glad to call home. <laughs> we could want and ask for the situation or the privilege to be able to go back, 
But we know with greater confidence now that it's better for us to move forward and to serve him in a different place. We can with confidence say that whatever God wants us to go into, his goodness and his greatness that has served us well, that has been good and great in that past, will be good and great in the future. We, friends, have no promise or no guarantee that he will fulfill his promises to us in the same way that he has in the past. We have no agreement or no covenant from God that the good things that are coming to us in the future will look the same way as they did in the past. What we do have from him is the absolute confidence, unshakable faith that he is the same as he always has been and he will always be good. He will always be faithful. He will always be kind. And that will endure from everlasting to everlasting. And so whatever the future days may bring, our God will be good there. Our God will be great and he will be sovereign in those places. Whatever that may look like. And that will always be the case until the end. So we go forward from this place with him. Wherever we go. And we allow that to push us forward. And we also allow us to be pushed forward out towards those people that are not here with us now. Those people, towards those people that are not ascribing to him what is due to him. We have this call in multiple places throughout this, uh, throughout this passage. Uh, verse 23, we already read. Verse uh, 28 refers to the families of the peoples. Verse 30 calls out to all the earth, all the heavens. Verse 31, all the nations. And if it were not enough to refer to all the peoples in everywhere of every tribe of every nation, then it moves out from there even to talk about all the fields and everything that is in the field, all the forests and everything that is in the forests. So if we run out of people to talk to, to tell about who, who God is and how great and how wonderful he is, then we're to move out into the fields and start talking to the, to the trees and to the plants and to the and to the end of the bushes and the bugs that are out there. We're to say to them and to declare to them how great the God is that made all of this and how much he deserves to be worshipped. We're to call out to them and to tell them that God, the God that has made everything, he deserves to be worshipped. He is good and he is great. And he will deserve to be worshipped for all of eternity. Yeah. This is an example for us, a people that have recognized that have recognized that God is good and great. He has been good and great in the past. He is now and he will continue to be. And that means that not just they, those people that are gathered at this point at, uh, on that mount that are offering worship and song on that day, not just them, but all the peoples everywhere ought to worship God and ought to bow before him and recognize that the God that made all and reigns over everything deserves to be worshiped deserves to be praised. He deserves to be acknowledged for who he is. And everyone everywhere ought to bow their knee before him. For he is worthy of that. It is due him. And for those that are not yet doing so, we are to go out to them and to call out to them lovingly to encourage them to do what is right. There are things in our life that ought to encourage us to do that, that ought to motivate us to go out to those people that do not know who God is and do not acknowledge how good and how great he is. And if you don't yet see that, I encourage you to look back and to see those things. To look at what he's done and the marvelous works that he has done. 
who he is now and who he continues to be so that you may be motivated to do that, so that you may seek out those in your family and those next door, maybe even those that are far away, that do not yet bow their knee before him and ascribe to him what he is owed. People get that in this place. We see that through many of the Psalms in, the, in, the, in, in our Psalter. We also see that remarkably, perhaps most remarkably, in the book of Daniel as the pagan kings are being confronted by God's goodness and greatness in and around Daniel and his friends. And sometimes the, the, the kings, they get it, and sometimes they don't. Nebuchadnezzar, for one, has this moment of clarity where he is, after this confrontation, that he recognizes this truth that we're talking about. That, that God, the God that is, that is the Israelites' worship, the God that has made the heavens and the earth is not a God just for Israel, is not a God just for the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. He is a God that deserves to be worshipped by all peoples everywhere. And he gets it. And he says, his, God's dominion, is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of the heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? No one can say that. There is no other God like that. There is nobody else that deserves worship and praise or submission and strength and service like our God. And we know him. And we're gathered together in his name to worship him. He is the God that reigns over our checkbooks and our lives and every single moment and every single second of our day. The farthest place that we can go for is the same. He rules and he reigns there. And everybody that is there deserves, ought to bow down before him and give him worship because he, it is due him. It is good to do so. And one day they will bow before him. And in this case, a pagan king gets it. Do we in all of our life get the same truth? If you will permit me, the best illustration my feeble mind has come across is this, um, about, a, about a year ago, uh, the Supreme Court was considering a case in which they were, um, they were considering how um, overseas where cacao, cocoa is being harvested, the, the chocolate companies in the States then are, are, um, are bringing in chocolate from these places uh, overseas, but at those places where cacao is being harvested, there is slave labor and they're in horrible conditions. That's not debatable, but the situation is horrible for these that the, the media in the States then would uh, seek to draw them up empathy by drawing a, our attention to the fact that those people are in such hard situations made much more difficult because these people are, have never even tasted chocolate. And we're supposed to be empathetic towards, towards that. I mean, understandably so, to, to a certain extent. But that is based upon this belief that we all share, that there are some things perhaps that are so good and so great that to be denied that thing that is so good and so great is a travesty. It's almost like a, a right, a human right. Anybody, anywhere. In that case, they're talking about chocolate and what a crime it would be to withhold people in that situation, from enjoying chocolate. Now jump from that frivolous example then to the, the passage that we're talking about and the truth that Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged on that day. 
the God that we know, the God that we worship, the God that saves us by giving his son to die on a cross for our sins. Is a God that has walked with us, a God that has been good and kind to us in so many ways, a God that would sustain us and a God that would love us through our foibles and our faults and our difficulties, a God that truly cares about the tragedy that's happened in this church and the tragedies and the struggles that we're going through, a God that walks with us through all of those things with abundant mercy and kindness that will never end. We know of that goodness. We taste it and we drink it in each and every day that we can breathe in breath. It is a travesty to think that there are some people that are close to us that do not know the same great and good God that we worship. May we be pushed appropriately as we consider the good that he has done in the past, the good and the great things that he does now, who he is now, and his promises, yes, for the future that will go with us and demand that others will bow before him and acknowledge that same truth. May he push us out towards those people with his goodness and greatness as we go. Let's pray. Our great.